Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Scooby-Doo. Barney and Brad Fail. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? I mean, it's it's an indictment on everyone who thought 2021 was going to be like better than last year. I I had already prepared myself for this to not be a good year, but man. Bonkers, huh? Yeah, um, a coup led by our most toothless um, was not really what I expected. But my favorite thing, though, is uh, seeing these kind of seditionist uh, Republican congressmen having to like do a backflip, being like, <laughs> oh, that's not what I meant. Josh Hawley from Missouri, who was one of the ones who kind of kickstarted this whole thing, the editorial of the Kansas City uh, Star newspaper was like, Josh Hawley has blood on his hand. And I'm like, how are you going to come back from that? I'm sure he will, because that's just how the Republican Party functions. But it's just, I don't know. I find it very funny because um, I don't, I remember when I was very young, my mom explained to me the Gore-Bush thing by saying that George W. Bush is a towel snapper and Al Gore is a towel snappy, you know, in the <laughs> locker room. And the Dems are just so, they're getting snapped constantly. They're out there snapping each other. Meanwhile, the Republicans, somehow Mitt Romney can like look these people in the eye and be like, I disagree with you, but, uh, you know, we both, a party that we cherish or whatever. If, Mitt Romney, how do you not bang your head against the wall? Oh, well, it's Mitt Romney. That's why he doesn't bang your head against the wall. He doesn't have much in that skull. No, I think it's very funny to see all these, you know, kind of centrists be like, this, we can't stand for this. This it's like first of all, a you know since the the chain the I mean the caning of Charles Sumner like violence in Congress is a very old narrative and also um, everyone saw this coming except for you guys apparently so and that and the fucking capital security um, but they were like it's like mall cops it was like Paul Blart Paul Blart stuff <laughs> <laughs> an armed insurrection. I can't say it wouldn't have been better without a few segues in the mix. Uh, yeah, I mean, that yeah. could have built up some kind of barrier. Um, but there were a lot of stairs in the Capitol building. So That's that true. That's would true. Have, would have been an impediment, I reckon. I was just surprised they used the door. Like, it's the Capitol. I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter, but um, I was in Washington a couple of years ago, and I went to a thing at the Smithsonian, and I was eating with this woman who worked at the Capitol. And she was telling me about how, effectively, the... I'm, you know, again, I'm not an architect. I just play one on TV. But the facade of the building is, is crumbling, right? It's like a major pressing like security concern and also a, a concern of building stability because, again, the Potomac, that's marshy, springy ground. You know, this is the city is effectively a swamp. And um, how easy it would really be to kind of just worm your way in through these, this crumbling infrastructure and get on in and, you know... I'm like, why'd they bother using the door? I mean, as established, they're not very bright people. I don't know how many structural engineers are kind of in the mix That's on the true. front line. It's just like, it's very much like gaping hole and then like a bush in front of a gaping hole. Bush is gaping <laughs> hole. Um, <laughs> That's just and, Florida. Yes. Um, 
<laughs> but I did think it was very funny when the one guy, not funny. I mean, obviously this is, this is a terrible thing. I don't hold Congress and, and the Capitol building sacred in terms of like, you know, national like myth making because, you know, obviously my political views don't adhere but that. Um, but it is also ex- extremely weird to see somebody putting a Make America Great Again hat on a statue of Gerald Ford. Like of all the presidents, <laughs> you wanted to say Ford is in line with us. At least put it the, on the one who invented it. Fucking Ronnie. He's the one who came up with the phrase. And then it will not him, but... No, I know what you mean. Like, it's like Ford. Nobody claims Ford. No one wants Ford. He didn't do anything. What a nothing president. Can't even get shot right. <laughs> no, it, just, it was just... It was really weird watching the whole thing unfold. Watching live TV. Watching everyone dance around words like coup and sedition on television. Except for Brian Williams, who of course had to do his whole Hamlet soliloquy thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, like, I, I, because of my time zone, obviously, was asleep through the majority of the the situation. And when I woke up, man, it was a lot to wake up to. Because usually the first thing I do when I wake up is I look at our group chat and try and see if anything big has happened. Boy, what a lot <laughs> to wade through. <laughs> it was very, it was just so odd because, you know, you wake up in the morning and everyone, um, you know, like the news, the newspapers and stuff, because, you know, I am an LA Times subscriber. It's like, oh, this is going to be a busy day, you know, because we were anticipating like a, a really drawn out certification process because obviously everyone's going to object. But nobody really knew, I, except for, I don't know, the Capitol Police or whoever, <laughs> the Department of Defense, whoever knew this was going to happen going in, knew how long exactly this day was going to be. Certainly nobody warned Mitch. Um, these Mitch looked like shit by the end of it. So. Well, that's just his natural state. Yeah, but he hasn't stayed up till 3 a.m. in probably 75 years. Well, him and me both, uh, I can no longer stay. I didn't, not even for New Year's Eve did I stay up till midnight. I was in bed, 10.30, not about it. Well, we didn't record this episode last night because I fell asleep before 8 o'clock. So, Again, that's you know, kind of your natural state. Kind of my natural state. Me and Gerald <laughs> Ford. Uh very weird. Mick Mulvaney resigned. Weird day. Weird, weird day. I don't know. I love all these people, though, who are, like, throwing down their arms. They're like, I give up. Finally. This, I can't stand. It's like, there's, like, how many days left in the administration? Like, six or, <laughs> you know, good job getting out early. <laughs> Congratulations on your, on your, on your spine. Well, speaking of someone else who also definitely had a backbone and used it when it came to casting, somebody who appears to have regretted virtually every moment of his career on screen. And this I'm not talking about Clark Gable. Yeah. <laughs> because this is an episode about regret. This is an episode about missed opportunities. This is an episode about having really bad tasted women. This is an episode about many things. And it's an episode about Fresh Tom. He doesn't deserve you. From now on, you're working for me. Name your own term. Oh, but... Any objections? None. Motion's carried. But I'd rather cook for you, Mr. Niles. We can have him for Sunday dinner. I'm going to be busy on Sundays. You'll regret this folly, young man. Then everything's settled. I don't think I'll go to the office today. I, I'll have lunch at one. I'd like something tricky with kidneys. And ground glass. Hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. Uh, we're back for another year, bombastic year of the podcast, hopefully with more episodes in it this time. Today, we are doing our very first listener-requested content, 
Yeah, so we've never done a listener request before. Uh, we have gotten a few, which are still very much kind of on the docket for the future. We should shout out Tom, who is very loyal and has suggested a couple of great episodes that we hope to make at some point. But uh, this particular request was from Isabella, and it turned out to be just totally serendipitous because we had been talking about doing a bonus about kind of like MGM era Joan Crawford. But then we finally checked our email for the first time in approximately <laughs> 95 years. <laughs> And we, look, we just weren't that. expecting we weren't <laughs> expecting anyone to have sent us an email. We didn't like intentionally say, oh, who cares about our email? It's just we genuinely thought no one would have contacted us. <laughs> In the same way that I am all the hits on the blog. Like if you look at it, it's like, oh, that's me. <laughs> if you need to reach me, my email is chunkylover53 at AOL. So we checked our email and found this message from Isabella from like October. I believe. So sorry about that. But she suggested a double feature entitled Franchot Tone Bitterly Regrets Leaving the Group Theater, which is very true. And uh, that is comprised of Love on the Run from 1936 and Three Loves Has Nancy from 1938. You know, uh, here's something. I didn't remember this. I, I did approximately zero work for this episode, as always. And uh, I was like, anyway, I somehow ended up on a, on a, on a Franchot Tone, like, fan site or whatever and like the author of the, the blog <laughs> somehow 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 ended up there <laughs> somehow and was google you know what i mean i i don't i don't remember what i was doing <laughs> was like even robert osborne doesn't pronounce it right and i was like i don't remember how bob's born pronounced it rest in peace how do you think he said the name franchot home do you think he said franchot i hope so francho like a like a dorito it's very hard <laughs> for me not to say francho yeah, like just instinctively, because that's where I I go with it. It's like when I found out how to pronounce Tyrone Power. I was I was I I didn't know that. You know, um, it's like when you guys found out how you're supposed to pronounce Paramount. These things these things happen, but uh, <laughs> that is absolutely not correct. It's just true. It's as the always. way that you pronounce Paramount, it's the way and it's the way that all it. the like people who had their accents totally destroyed by Hollywood. It's the way pronounce everyone Paramount. who worked at the studio pronounces it. And one of these days, you people will see the light. Anyway, uh, we should. We sh- or which one are we going to do first? We can do. Uh, well, we should probably go chronologically. Love on the run. Yeah, is love first. on the run. Yeah. Now I'm going to, as the resident film recapper, I'm going to need a lot more support on this one because, man, I don't fucking remember what happened in this movie. My my um, first note is Clark Gable. Who the hell is Clark Gable? So who the hell is, is Clark, Clark Gable? Gable? So well, that's that's much far as like I George Washington. He didn't have real teeth either. So. <laughs> So yes, Love on the Run, W.S. Van Dyke, vehicle for Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, and obviously our good friend, who we've described as sort of a chaotic evil... Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> French tone. Um, so this, it was, uh, it's an odd one, I find. It begins with sort of two rival American newspaper, like, correspondents or journalists... Uh, one being Clark Gable and the other being Francho Tone, obviously. And Francho's name in this, Barnabas, is his character's name. Isn't it uh, and it's Barnabas, the last name starts with a P or something? Pels. Bad. Bad. It's a bad name, but also we, at where I work, we have uh, an office dog whose name is Barnaby, and he's often called Barnabas. As a bit of a nickname. Uh, very different personalities. Uh, <laughs> so these two rival journalists, they're fighting over who has to cover two boring assignments. So like 
they're trying to decide who will get which story. Uh, neither of them want to do either of them, and it's like, why are you a journalist? Also, if you're a for like a correspondent working in London in 1936, surely there's some things happening to be covering. Also, Gable played a lot of reporters for someone who I'm almost definitely sure couldn't read. I also would like to note that the way we've described it so far, the way Amelia has described it so far, it sounds like this could maybe be taking place in like a newspaper office. Um, it's not. They are rivals, but they share a hotel room. They've got like Lucy and Ricky beds. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of intimate to the point where you almost expect like Gable to be wearing the pajama pants and Francho's got the shirt on, you know? <laughs> That's the it's an odd, on the run. It's an odd setup. Um, but I mean, you know, I'm not going to rain on their parade. If that's how they want to live, that's how they want to live. I'm not one to judge. So the two different stories um, to cover is Clark Gable gets given the wedding of the millionaires, Sally Parker, who is Joan Crawford. Um, and she is getting married to this, he's like a prince. Yeah, like a Russian prince. Prince, prince Igor, yeah. um, who's Ivan Lebedev. And Franchot gets to interview, like, this cross-country aviator, Baron Otto Spanderman, who's Reginald Owen. Baron Otto um, Spiderman. <laughs> Spiderman. Uh, and his wife, Baroness Hilda, who is Mona Barry. So when Clark Abel gets to the wedding to cover it, um, he sees Joan Crawford running out of the venue crying. Um, and so he follows her rather creepily all the way to her t hotel. Um, and Joan is seemingly incensed. Uh, she's raging about the Baron being, oh no, not the Baron. I see, this is the thing. It's too much European trash royalty for me to wrap my head around. Uh, the prince that he's like a no good, no account fortune hunter. Take them away! Do you hear me? Take them right back to Igor and throw them in his contemptible little face. And you can tell him and his queasy old uncle if they want anybody to sign a marriage settlement, they can get another girl. But Miss Parker... He wanted me for myself, did he? Only I had to buy him in the bargain. Well, I'd buy his whole Russian swamp if I was sure he didn't go with it. That's what I'd do. You can tell him that. And you can tell his uncles and his aunts and his sisters and his cousins and... Who are you? And this is where, it, like, I'm like, what the hell happens here? Because she... She bumps into Clark Gable, and Clark Gable just sort of worms his way into her confidence. And then when the prince comes to sort of try and reconcile with Joan, Clark punches him in the face. <laughs> and that seems to cement his value to Joan Crawford. He's also very specifically pretending not to be a reporter because she constantly repeats how much she specifically hates reporters. And yeah. I think that the the prince also recognizes Clark as a reporter. Yeah, I think that's why he punches him before he'll like, identify him as a, a newspaper man. And then I'm, I'm kind of confused at this point because it's like suddenly they're posing as the aviating couple, the Baron and the Baroness, to get away from, I assume, reporters. Yeah. Um, and they're wearing... The first of a series of incredible costumes. Yeah, so everyone kind of has realized there's something weird going on and that Joan uh, bailed on the wedding. So they're all like hammering on the door of her hotel room and they've got this like knocked out Russian prince on the floor. So they're like, okay, we have to escape this hotel. So they go and they steal, I think. Yeah, they do. They steal the fucked up aviation suits from the Baron and the Baroness. And in order to. In the same hotel, yeah. I believe. 
And in order to do that, Gable also like incapacitates the Baron and the Baroness and Franchot Tone, who was interviewing them at the time. Yeah, he. I think he doesn't. He lock Franchot Tone in a cupboard. Yes, he does. For for a lot of this movie, uh, Franchot Tone is on the receiving end of incredible amounts of abuse yeah. from Clark Gable, but I still don't feel that sympathetic to him. So they're cosplaying as these aviators. These suits have, like, really frightening masks. They look sort of like skin masks. They're very, like, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, it'll have to be an image on the blog. It, it's it's so hard to describe. They're like if David Lynch imagined an elephant. <laughs> That's kind well, of what that, they look like. That, they weren't that hard to describe, I guess. And so they get all the way to the, the plane, the famous plane, uh, and just fucking take off in it. Even though Clark Abel is a reporter, he can somehow fly a plane, which he explains away by saying, oh, I, I flew once or can fly. And it's like, man, I just would not be, would not be getting in a plane. They, they fly away. Um, I don't think they quite know exactly where they're flying. Just somewhere in Europe seems to be the go. Uh, they crash land because obviously Clark Abel's not a great pilot. And for some reason, no injuries at all from this crash landing. Um, but while they were in the air, they, uh, because they didn't know where they were going, they dug out that map that was already on the plane belonging to the Baron and Baroness and somehow figured out from that or Clark figures out from that that they're spies. They're actually spies. And so he smells like a bigger story than this runaway bride shit. So what on earth is this? Let's see. What? Number X25934 Foreign Office Confident. Wait a minute. This nightmare gets any worse. What's wrong? Plenty. Say, this is an admiralty chart. Coast defense stations, range of fire, and the whole works. Phonies? Hey, the Baron and Baroness are spies. You mean this flight and everything is... It's just a hop to smuggle this out of England. Say, we're small fry, Sally. Do you realize what a story this will make? What do you mean, story? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, well, I mean what a story it'll make to tell our grandchildren. We're tied up in intrigue. But I don't want to be tied up in anything. We're international. I don't want to be international. I just want things to stop happening to me. So when he discovers that they are spies, he sort of sends a, a cable to his editor in New York about him having discovered this lead and then he's going to follow it. But Clark and Joan are discovered by Franco. He's like a bloodhound. He's tracked him down. I don't know how. It's never really explained how he found them. We do see him roll up like a minute too late after they take off at the airfield, but I don't know how yeah, he found how them in France. Know that where they crashed. Yeah, <laughs> I mean maybe he's got some kind of divining power that we're not privy to. But he catches up with them and he he comes along with them. He just sort of inserts himself into the situation and they steal a truck. Which is somehow filled with costumes. I don't know how many kind of costume trucks are ju were just, like, cruising through country France. Oh, wait, you know what? I just remembered. He finds them in Paris. Of course. Yeah, so they, <laughs> they like, hitchhike to Paris and put on their little French peasant boy outfits. And that's where Franchot finds them. Yeah. Yes. So, sorry, there's so many costume changes, like a ridiculous amount of costume changes for the context of this movie. This is, this is when they steal the other van full of costumes. Once they're in Paris, Clark tells Franchot that he can get in on the spy story. And they together they steal a van full of dresses. And then Joan goes in the back and picks out like the least practical dress that she could ever wear. Yeah. 
this like flowy sequin thing. Yeah, and she puts it on while the the car the truck is in motion, which seems ill advised, but she does it anyway. But then I think the is it the truck either crashes or breaks down. Something. Oh, you know, no, no, you know what it is. Uh, this is where we get a visual gag that I actually do enjoy, where one of them is like, oh, the cops are coming, and they show this one French cop oh, on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> is it because they're being chased by the cop that they crash or something? Something happens, and then Francho... See, I did it. I did it, Francho. Uh, Francho is uh, double-crossed. He's double-crossed by Clark, and Clark locks him in the van, and they, they book it. Yeah, it's another count of abuse. But then Clark and, and Joan sort of just wander through the forest uh, until they stumble upon the palace of uh, Fontainebleau. They just take up residence in this palace, and, well, Joan's still in her dress, perfectly tied not at all battered and beaten from the road. And Clark takes it upon himself to just put on some clothes that he finds in the palace, which, one, would not have fit him if we're talking about, like, French royals, because they were all tiny. And two, why would you put on dead people clothes? It's my big thing. Well, my and that's what I'm thinking when Joan crawls into um, Madame de Pompadour's bed. She crawls into her bed, and I'm like... There's got to be, like, a layer of dust on that thing. Several inches thick. Then they just decide to start dancing. And that's when they, I guess, realize that they're in love or something. But then they're interrupted by, like, the groundskeeper or whoever is The caretaker. Yeah, looking after the, the palace. And he assumes that they're ghosts. Your Majesty, madame. Down, Bismarck, down. These people live here. They're friends of mine. Who are you? Guess. Little Bo Peep. <laughs> no, but you're warm. We give up. Who? The caretaker of your palace, Your Majesty. I have been for 46 years. Bismarck and I have spent every night here and enjoy every minute of it. And all the fun we have had with you and all the other ghosts. All the other ghosts? Then you think we are ghosts, too? Oh, we, 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 we. I know you are. The ghost of King Louis XIV and Madame de Maintenon. Your Majesty, Madame, may I present Bismarck? Who is Bismarck? And where is he? He's my dog. He's right here at my feet. Uh, Bismarck, all over, like a good dog. Well, <laughs> isn't he clever? I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, Donald Meek is very um, welcome to my twisted mind in this. <laughs> um, he sees, is it a cat or a dog? I don't remember. That isn't there. And he... It says something about like playing, like he's playing like three D chess in his mind, and communicating with Clark as if he's like Louis the Fourteenth or whatever the hell. He's broken. He's broken inside. But like he also doesn't question that Jones' outfit isn't period because it's not like the same era as what Clark's dressed in. It's just whatever was in the back of that costume truck, and it's it's a very sort of thirties cut. But I mean, I guess Donald Meek has a couple of screws loose. I think he's got bigger so... problems at this point. <laughs> I think he hasn't left the grounds of this palace in like a very long time and probably doesn't know what's in fashion right now. It starts out with uh, uh Gable and Joan dancing and then Meek walks mm-hmm. in and through some series of events Joan ends up like jitterbugging with Donald Meek and everything's going great until a gun falls out of his pocket. Yeah. Oh, right. And then he gets, like, crazy suicidal it's and, like, like, holds it up to his head. 
Don't be afraid, madame. It is not loaded. No, 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 not your head. This gun is crazy. The gun's crazy. You're all right. Oui. There, you see? Yeah, and they've been doing like, <laughs> like swinging. Remember, they're doing they're doing the like the the bump, like they're doing like hip thrusts. Yeah, remember? And then Joan's like showing him how to do it, and then Donald Meek's like whoa, whoa, whoa and doing it, and then uh, Gable, I think, is playing like an upright. He's always playing the piano, an upright bass. I don't know where the hell I got that one from. But he's playing the piano, <laughs> and it's like it's swinging. You know, it's got this whole jazzy, jazzy, jazzy. You know, and then Joan's bam, bam, bumping and grinding, and then Donald Meek is bumping and grinding, and Franchot's still locked in the back of a van somewhere. <laughs> Um, it's very sort of like, it's always sunny. Holy shit, this thing is loaded. Like, <laughs> feeling when the gun, the gun drops out. But I don't think Franco is in that, um, in the back of that truck because he appears in costume. Well, <laughs> okay, so right. after the gun, after the gun goes flying, we cut to Franco like, terminatoring his way through the forest. Hey, yeah. Right, so he's gotten out right. of the van. And yes. he comes upon the palace and decides this is the perfect time to just fucking, like, bathe nude in a pond. No, you know what it's like? It's like the bit at the end of Predator where Arnold Schwarzenegger is, like, covered in the mud. <laughs> and he, like, comes out of the water and it's just his eyes. That's kind of what it's like when he <laughs> enters. Because he comes in through the pond in the palace and then makes his way inside. Well, he he gets naked and gets in the pond and takes a bath with all these, like, frogs. And while he's doing it, Donald Meek, for whatever reason, like, steals his clothes. But it is forbidden to sleep here. Now, don't worry, buddy. We'll get you out of it. Where are my pants? Oh, oh, they're a bunch of peasants. I was going to whip Where, Where are, are my clothes, Mr. Underwear Snatcher? Hey, the, the law! Come on! And that's why he has to put on the old clothes from the palace. But as I noted, there was no reason for him to wear that giant feathered hat. He just did that for, like, the vibes. You gotta complete the look. Can't half-ass it. <laughs> also, why is he so hell-bent on following Gable and Crawford? I know that she's, like, her... The fact that she's, like, run away. I mean, it, basically, it's just it happened one night. But I think interminable he can, he and bad. He sort of, like, smell that there's something going on and he wants a bit of the action. He wants to steal it from Clark Gable. Because they're the story or Joan or both. I just feel like he could have found a telephone by now. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it's like, I feel like he could have already called William Demarest with this story, their editor back in New York, like several times at this point. It's kind of there that sort of Franco kind of like blows everything up by telling Joan that Mike is a reporter and that he's also a reporter. Gable, sorry. And obviously Gable tries to like grovel and apologize to Joan Crawford, but she's like, get fucked. I don't want to deal with you. And she sort of teams up with Franco to get back at Clark Gable and they go off to go and make headlines, apparently. And so they get on the train, they start traveling to Nice. And it's kind of like here that Joan realizes that she's made a mistake and she wants to go back to Clark Gable because she, she loves him, apparently. But it's here when the, the Baron and the Baroness come back into the picture and storm their compartment and demand that Joan Crawford give them that map, the magic map that somehow also discloses the fact that they're spies. But uh, she doesn't have it, I believe. I think um, I think Clark Gable has it at this point. Uh, then they push Franco off the train. Wait, Mr. Fouts. Play bridge. Yeah, well, they're just fair. Who'd we get for a fourth? Hey, hey, what's the idea? That's what I mean by stuff. 
You are about to be soft. Jump. You think I'm crazy? Jump at once. Hey, now wait. Now listen. Maybe the next stop will... Yes. Um, <laughs> yet, a, yet another insult. <laughs> a full Joseph Cotton, Uncle Charlie, shadow of a doubt, fresh off this train. <laughs> um, which is the common theme between these two movies, the, the sort of train yeah. high-stakes drama. There were there are too many trains in movies in the 30s. I think it gets to a point, every movie thinks it's like 20th century. It's like, this, we don't need this much train. They could find another place to do their business. There could be a scene where they're hanging wallpaper or something, anything at this point. Take it off the trains. <laughs> Done with the trains. So I guess um, the Baron and the Baroness have been told that Joan, or Joan told them that Gable has the map and they figure that she's probably going to go to Gable so they follow her. Meanwhile, Gable is in Paris. He's feeling guilty. He resigns from the paper and Franchot somehow survives being pushed off a moving train and tracks down <laughs> Gable in Paris. <laughs> And so that's where we're at. Established he he's the original Arnold Schwarzenegger, so that's why he hasn't died, obviously. <laughs> also because it it's been, Amelia... It would have been great to see Franco in kindergarten cop. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what he did? Um Amelia made a comment and this is something I had never noticed in all of my years of consuming the work of Mr. Franco Town. Amelia was like, Franco got a bit of a wagon and um <laughs> I think he fell ass first and he just bounced up in the air like he was on a hippity hop <laughs> well boing, i didn't say that boing. i said he has he has a very odd shape it's kind of like straight up and down but then there's like junk in the trunk <laughs> um no you're right it's, it's not like... it's not like like i think the other foremost example that comes to mind is cagney right jimmy cagney's got you know yeah. like i always say you could put a tea tray on that you know he's got a real <laughs> he's got yeah but ass. jimmy cagney has like muscles to support it like he's kind of built like corned beef very compact but like there's muscle in there whereas Francho is just like I don't know kind of it's probably because it's cylinder yeah with like a a bump in it okay okay That's visualizing how, how about like a little silo right but there's like a little <laughs> um hatch in the side where you put in the hay or the um, what's the the flowing grain from your you know what I mean encased in flowing grain meme? You it's, know like I mean? that's where it goes. it's like an awning. It's like an awning. Well, I was gonna say I think that's because Cagney had physical activities other than drinking that he engaged. Yeah, exactly. In. That's I don't what, think he was. Fresh probably say tennis or something, but yeah, you know, whereas you know, yeah, Cag boxed, did all those oh, things. Um, I mean, so did Francho. He boxed. Just <laughs> <He> boxed Tom <laughs> Neal. <laughs> So I was just questioning how he managed to get around so quickly dragging that wagon. But um, <laughs> he does. Maybe that cushioned his fall from the train. We don't know. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, he tracks down Clark at this restaurant in Paris and tells him that he lost a gallon of blood. That's a very fancy disguise, Mr. Pels. You're as transparent as a sieve. Gosh, I'm glad I found you. We got to talk. Yeah, no sad now, Mr. Qu'est-ce que je peux vous servir? I'm weak as a cat. I lost about a gallon of blood, the doctor says. <laughs> And uh, I love screenwriters. I don't know how much that is. I'm just going to sound like a lot. <laughs> so uh, Gable kind of regains uh, Franchot's trust somehow, which he shouldn't be able to do. But anyway, and uh, Franchot tells him that the Baron and Baroness are following Joan to Nice. And so then once again, Gable completely fucks over Franchot. He like tells him to order all this food and he's just going to go make a phone call. And then he bails and sticks him with the check. And this man is, you know, missing a gallon of blood. And uh... 
And then Gable shows up in Nice and finds Joan. And the Baron and the Baroness have tracked her down there. Uh, and they, they kidnap Joan. And they've also kidnapped Franchot. Right. So the... Okay, they go to the train station in Nice. This is such a complicated movie and such a stupid movie. They go to the train station and Joan goes to the bathroom uh, while Franchot waits. No. Why is Franchot... I don't remember. No, is it... I on, No, it's honestly, Clark Gable. No idea. It's Gable. It's Gable. Okay. It's Gable. So... Because <laughs> they somehow switch places. That's why it's confusing. It's not just we're morons, which... We might we are, be, but, but... <laughs> not in this. Joan goes to the bathroom. The Baroness locks her in a stall or whatever, puts on her clothes and poses as her and gets on the train with Gable. And then Franchot shows up after the train has left. Anyway, it ends up with Joan being kidnapped. She's brought to this sort of like shack and she sees Clark Gable all trussed up. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I love you. But... He's sort of been beaten or whatever, um, and he's gagged. Um, the Baron and Baroness go off and do something, I assume plotting. But is it here that Francho sort of turns up and he's like... I can't um, remember if Francho takes Gable's place before or after Joan arrives. I think when Joan's making her love confession to the bound and gagged man, it turns out it's Franchot, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, Christ. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Can you imagine having to, like, play these scenes? You know what I mean? Having to keep all this shit straight? Anyway, it's it's more confusing than Inception. I don't know why people think Inception's so difficult to grasp. This shit is... This is where the real men play, huh? I guess the state of affairs at this point is everyone has converged on the chalet belonging to the Baron and the Baroness. Gable was tied up. He tricks Franchot into taking his place. Joan shows up. She's like, oh, I love you. I love you. Realizes it's Franchot, but it's too late. She gets tied up as well. And the cops that are with her, she's brought some cops. They get tied up. So everyone's tied up except for Gable. And then what does Gable do? Um, he causes some havoc, I assume. Um, he, I think he steals a I gun. I think he frees... He, he frees the policeman as well. Um, and he surprises the Baron and the Baroness... We also get, um, for some reason, a scene of Reginald Owen as the Baron in the shower, which I didn't need. Yeah, I didn't need that. I don't that. appreciate that. But they, they overwhelm the Baron and the Baroness and sort of leaving Clark Gable and Joan Crawford to reunite. And then uh, in the last, the final insult, they just leave Franchot tied up on the chair. And this is a real heel turn for Joan, because through yes. most of the movie, I'm thinking Joan's too good for Gable, because Gable's this dick who keeps like leaving Franchot for dead. But then she just goes with this. She's like, all right, fuck you, and, and bails. Um, and so, yeah, they leave him. But then they kind of have a change of heart, and they're like, oh, well, maybe maybe we should let him go. And they come back, and they find uh, Francho on the ground, still bound to the chair, but he's managed to get the receiver and the phone on the ground, and he's calling his editor. I don't know how he would have managed that. He used his big ass as some kind of hand. I don't know. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now send this, collect, press rates, exclusive, the New York Dispatch, by Barnabas W. Pels. Now get that name right. B for black, A for... A for ain't you ashamed of yourself. Oh, Mike, no! They change that, change that byline. Make it Barnabas W. Pels and Michael Anthony. 
Yeah, I was going to do it all the time, Mike, old pal. Yeah, sure you were, Barney, old pal. Uh, Clark's like, hmm, I caught you doing the wrong thing because uh, Franco's sort of taking all the credit for this story. And then um, Franco's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, we'll, we'll put both our names on it, you know. And he says, you know, include my name and also, you know, Clark Gable's character's name and... That's it. That's the movie. Yeah, we we learn that Gable and Joan are going to get married because I guess they're both just really shitty people, as we've learned in the last 30 seconds of this movie. They they uh, bond over their mutual hatred of Franco Tony yeah. and his huge ass. I think it's like they're just jealous. Uh, it's a lot of jealousy coming from them because they just simply don't have... They don't cut the same figure, do they? They don't. They don't. You know... It's 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 interesting because I I had to check Harrison's reports, which is uh, Harrison's reports was a um, it was a tradesman's journal, so it was for exhibitors and it would advise exhibitors of what the critics in New York, where Harrison's was based, thought of a particular picture that was coming, and not so much only critics but also theater owners, like what kind of business was it doing in New York, and whether or not that business was going to be replicated like throughout the country, like. The editorial slant of Harrison's report oftentimes would be like, this is a wonderful movie, but don't play it in a small town. Nobody's going to come to see it. Or this movie sucks ass and I want to kill Harry Cohn myself. Like that was kind of, you know, like the attitude. And um, oftentimes, because at the time, movies were sold in packages. So you didn't, if you owned a theater in like, I don't know, Poughkeepsie, New York, you didn't book films on an individual basis. You bought a package from the studio. And so um, when these packages would be announced, they'd be given kind of like um, a theoretical cast or like one specific solid star. So you'd, you'd book a movie and you wouldn't know what it would be, but it would be like a Gene Harlow picture, like of some variety. And when the earliest, I think I, I think I can find from Harrison's about this movie was that it was going to be Bob Montgomery and Myrna Loy. Interesting. Which I think might've been better. I think that might've <laughs> been better. Yeah. Yeah, and then Harrison's at one point reported that it was uh, rumored that it, it might instead end up being Bill Powell and Myrna Loy, obviously, which are that's the hottest pairing at the time at MGM, um, because Gable Crawford had kind of cooled off a little bit in comparison. Which is interesting. It's interesting when you think about Gable and Crawford in that way because it, to me, it's a pairing that is so much of that mid thirties that it's kind of I guess nineteen thirty six is still the mid thirties, but. I don't know. You're just you're right there on the precipice of like this whole new chapter in Joan's career. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's it this movie. I don't know. I don't like this movie, but also I'm not a big fan of the the Gable Crawford pairing in general. I think it's sad that Franco can't even get the girl when he's married to her in real life. I don't think there's any other actor that has like happened to like consistently all the time. Yeah, it is really weird to cast Joan and Franco in this movie and not even have a, a romantic angle to it at all. He doesn't even lose the girl. It's just never really an option. Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. One thing I do appreciate, though, is that it has the obligatory scene that I want to see in every Franchot picture, which is a hangover. It, it's not a Franchot tone movie unless there's a scene where he's sleeping off, you know, a wild boozy night. And I was trying to figure out what his, like, like hangover voice reminded me of. And then I was like, oh, Jack Nicholson. And then I realized it wasn't Jack Nicholson. It was Phil Hartman doing Jack Nicholson <laughs> as the air conditioning unit in the Brave Little Toaster. Why don't you just shut off? Hey, I'm real scared there, Kirby. What are you gonna do? Suck me to death? Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I do have I do have um, two interesting facts about this movie. The first one cannot verify whether this is true or not. Uh, possibly the first film to feature a knock knock joke. Knock knock. 
Who's there? Machiavelli. Machiavelli who? Machiavelli good suit for $10. <laughs> Seems a bit late in the game for that to be true. Um, well, what do, when was the first knock-knock joke? Well, the possible source of the joke is William Shakespeare's Macbeth. I think there would have been enough content in the intervening years for it to have appeared in film sooner. But apparently there was kind of a resurgence on the format of the knock-knock joke in 1936 as a parlor game. So maybe that makes sense if it had fallen out of favor and then sort of came back in vogue. You know, I got the mid-30s. Jokes at this time are very odd. I think it's the Media History Library Archive. Has like copies of like Cap and Billy's Whizbang. Mothers of River City. Heed that warning before it's too late. Watch for the telltale signs of corruption. The minute your son leaves the house, does he rebuckle his knickerbockers below the knee? Is there a nicotine stain on his index finger? A dime novel hidden in the corn crib? Is he starting to memorize jokes from Captain Billy's Whizbang? It's like you look at the jokes back then and you're like, these aren't jokes. These don't make any sense. <laughs> They're like old comic strips. These jokes will be like, there's an egg in my hat. And it'll be like, ha ha, you scoundrel. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not a joke. It's a statement. It's a little too postmodern for me. You know what I mean? It's a little too like Czech experimental. I mean, it was the depression. They were just looking for anything to laugh at, I That's guess. True. <laughs> uh, the other fact I do have is the fact that the the Lockheed Electra that Clark Gable and Joan Crawford fly in from London to France uh, is the same one that was flown by Amelia Earhart in her ill-fated around-the-world flight attempt the next year. Did they check to see if she was inside? <laughs> uh, I mean, considering it happened before she went missing... Um, but yeah, they had repainted it for this movie. Very proud of that one, are you? I just think the visual's so fun. She's just like in a, uh, in like a some sort of like cargo hold thing in there the whole time. <laughs> but that was only used for the ground sequences, though. That um, oh. the actual one of it flying uh, is just a model, obviously. So yeah, that makes sense. I don't think Clark knew how to fly. But yeah, so that's our first movie out of the way and now our second one uh richard thorpe three loves has nancy this is a better movie which isn't saying much <laughs> no it's not but but in this we have i guess two of candace's favorites mm-hmm. janet gaynor robert montgomery and our good friend franco tone boy i mean this whole kind this whole thing this whole movie has a very kind of fraser vibe <sighs> that i don't love <laughs> You know, um, it, I, I know exactly what you mean by that, and you're right. Robert Montgomery is an author, a writer, um, and it sort of opens on him planning this romantic night for the woman that he's currently, I wouldn't say courting. I would say trying to fuck. Yeah. Trying to fuck. Um, he's trying to seduce her. The woman is Claire Dodd. And he's sort of got his butler planning all these kind of nefarious things, like he's planning for the fuses to go out so they have to eat in candlelight. And basically just wants to get into her pants. What do you do after you serve the caviar? I go straight to the kitchen and pull out a fuse. Then what do you do? I heave it out of the window. 
Why not heave the girl out the window and have dinner with a fuse? Why do you heave it out of the window? Because then I can truthfully say we have no fuse. You really have no fuse? Not one, sir. Good. Then comes romantic darkness. You bring in the candelabra, serve the rest of the dinner, and then what do you do? I vanish into the night. But when Claire Dodd turns up at the apartment, she's brought her mother with her. And the mother is quite the busybody. She's like, oh, you know, it's so great. We all know that you're going to propose tonight. I've already called my daughter's father, my husband. He's going to come down. It's going to be great. And the entire time, Robert Montgomery is like, record scratch. Um, what's happening? I don't want to marry your daughter. Um, and like every kind of adult person, he just runs from this problem. Uh, he doesn't want to deal with it. He decides the best thing for him is to get some distance from Claire Dodd and her weird mother. Um, he goes to his publisher, who is Francho. Who is also his neighbor and they share a balcony. Yeah, it's weird. It's very, again, intimate. <laughs> oh, and they were college roommates. And they were roommates. And he he demands that Francho sends him sort of on a, a a book tour to promote his latest book because he's like, all the other authors are doing it, why can't I? And Francho's like, fine, just go, I hate you, and <laughs> sends him. So he ends up in this sort of southern town, um, I don't, it's never really disclosed where it is, where he meets Janet Gaynor, um, who's come in with her mother. Her mother has asked Janet to get the book signed for her, while Janet herself, no interest at all in the book or Robert Montgomery. Hey, you are. I'm glad you liked the book. No, I never said that. You didn't like it? I never read it. This is Mother's book. She was too embarrassed to ask you. Oh. But I might have time to read it on my honeymoon. Yes. How much is one? Uh, $2. Oh, no, thank you. I don't think I want one. Mother, did you know it was $2? I just said charge it. Miss Brewster, lifetime, they were only a dollar. Oh, but that was a smaller book, Nancy. Oh, not much. Well, I wouldn't think of returning it. It's been ruined. Uh, thank you. Oh, that's all right. It was our own fault. Uh, and she's very emphatic about this. Her mother invites Robert Montgomery to her her daughter's wedding, which is happening, is it the next day? I think it's the same day, right? And Bob's like, I got to get out of town. I'm not going to be here. And they're like, no, you'll be around for the next three to four hours. But Janet's like, I don't want this man at my wedding. I never want to see this man again. He may have paid $2 for a book. Which, by the way, $2 in 1936 for a goddamn book? Written by Robert Montgomery? Written by Robert Montgomery? <laughs> and she's like, oh, wow, I didn't know it would be so expensive. And now I've gone and ruined it because you've signed it. No one's going to want this. <laughs> uh, Robert Montgomery refuses. And he's like, oh, I'm going to head back to New York, I I'm not going to be here. Then it cuts to Janet getting ready for her wedding and her mysterious suitor, George, has not eventuated, does not come for the wedding. He's in New York and does he send her like a... I think it's like a mysterious letter saying that he's held up in New York and he can't be there for the wedding. And so Charlie Grapewin, who plays Janet's grandpa, is like mixing up with an orphan I don't even know his daddy, which is, I think, a really good line. That's what comes to mixing up with an orphan. I don't even know his daddy. Saying that, that Janet should not have been dating an orphan in the first place. It'll all be explained when we tell you who plays George. Okay, it's, it's a whole thing. But he is sort of, he pushes Janet to go to New York to track him down. Uh, and, and Janet, she's sort of 
quite naive, quite innocent. I don't think she's ever been on a train before, but she's she's determined. She's going to go to New York and she's going to find George. Uh, so she's on the train and she bumps into who else but Robert Montgomery. Oh, can I just, can I interrupt real quick? Like I always do. Uh, at the reading, there's like a whole like puppet show and Spinal Tap sign that says like Bob's character. So it's like Robert Montgomery reading and vacuum cleaner demonstration. <laughs> just remember <laughs> that. That's a really good gag. Anyway, continue. But yeah, she bumps him into him on the train and she proceeds to irritate him with all her sort of small town ways because she forgot her, you know, sandwiches. She doesn't know what to order on a train and she asks him all the question about New York and Rob Montgomery in this is sort of a gloomy bastard is how I'm going to describe him. He just, he hates everything, he hates everyone and he's sort of very jaded and cynical um especially about janet and he just really does not want anything to do with her because she keeps arguing she argues with like the waiter that the butter shouldn't cost 10 cents she's like stop our butter she's doing that olivia de havilland in the swarm southern accent she's like stop our butter 10 cents why i never doing the whole thing (laughs) bob's just like this hayseed is embarrassing me in front of my friends on this train i never heard of such a thing steak a dollar and a quarter well, we sold a whole cow for forty dollars. Of course, she was sort of peaked, but good eating. Our steaks are not peaked. Your vegetables are canned. Now look here, there's no need and for store this. store butter. If anything, I despise it. Store butter, ten cents. They stop off at a station somewhere. They're in like a store, and Janet thinks she's uh, forgotten her purse in the store. Train's about to leave. Bob's like, I'll go get it. Fuck off. I'll just go get your purse. Misses the train, and we get just an incredible shot. Speaking of Terminator running. Uh, <laughs> of Bob trying to catch this train. Much like in Terminator 2, where the the Terminator is chasing after the car and his hands turn into, like, knives. (laughs) That's the kind of vibe that we have. Um, It's also very funny because the conductor helping Janet onto the train sees this entire situation occur and makes no effort to stop the train so Bob can get back on. I mean, I guess it's not his job. He's not getting paid for that. Doesn't do anything to help, though. Because Bob deserves it. He probably knew that deep down. And then when Bob gets back on the train and he's and he, and he yells at Janet, Janet's got a really good line, which I put down in my notes as the podcast motto, where she goes, I ought to be ashamed of myself, and I am. <laughs> I'm afraid I owe you all an apology. I thought somebody had taken my bag, but, but nobody had. Now, I ought to be ashamed of myself, and I am. Good night. So they get to New York, and... Janet essentially stalks Robert Montgomery. Well, first she goes to find George at his workplace, which I think is like a dry cleaner or something. And George's boss, the manager, uh, first we find out that she was under the impression that George was the manager, which is not the case. And the manager's like, this fucker hasn't shown up in like, like five weeks or whatever. Here's his ukulele. Take it and don't come back. And so that's why Janet has to track down Bob because she doesn't know where George is and she doesn't know anyone in New York. And he stole, he stole what, like $200 worth of clothes or something? Yeah, he stole a bunch of shit from the the cleaner too. She's like, George wouldn't do that. When you find out who who plays George, it's like, how many people are his size? Well, particularly because after all this is happening, uh, she's found out all this about George and uh, she refuses to believe it. And her first instinct is that perhaps he's been kidnapped, which would be quite (laughs) a feat, again, given who plays this character. I don't believe it. Something must have happened to George. An accident. They always have an accident in New York. Maybe... He was kidnapped. Look, girly, take a tip from me and forget it. And you can do me a favor. I don't want anything around here that reminds me of George. Here. 
Take this with you. His... His ukulele. Well, you'll cry worse if you had to listen to him play it. The whole, like, waiting for Godot thing, you know what I mean? Waiting, waiting for George to show up and manifest his physical form in this movie. Yeah, well, we thought he would never turn up or or something else would happen, which would come clear And Todd clear and I had end. seen this movie before. <laughs> I totally forgot. Had completely put it out of our minds because it's such a weird twist. Yeah, so she she basically hooks up with uh, Robert Montgomery again and I guess kind of, like, weasels her way... Yeah, she weasels her way into his house and, like, tells his butler to basically get the fuck out because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. First, though, um, Bob gets home. He came home because Franchot sent him a telegram saying that Claire had left on... She's an actress. And so she'd left on tour with her play. So he thinks it's safe to come home. He comes home. Claire Dodd's there. And he's like, oh, you know, shit. And so when uh, Janet shows up at his apartment, he gets this this crafty scheme that he's going to pretend he's met and fallen in love with Janet. And I think the implication is kind of that he knocks her up. Like, they don't go there, obviously. But he's like, this is my responsibility, my burden to bear. <laughs> and so that's why she's living with him. And that's when she uh, uh, gets rid of the butler. Also, doesn't the butler leave wearing Bob's, like, Yale sweatshirt? Yes. Yeah. He, he steals it and he's like, oh, and Bob, like, points it out. He's like, I didn't know you go to, went to Yale. And... The butler's like, oh, it's a souvenir for all my years of service. Uh, so Janet sort of takes it upon herself to cook for Robert Montgomery. Uh, he resents this because she's making sort of like Vienna sausages and toast and eggs and whatever. And he's like, well, every morning I have, I don't know, like fucking Blues Brothers voice, a dry piece of white toast <laughs> because he doesn't have a, a, a bit of soul in his body. Help you, boy. You got any uh, white bread? Yes. I'll have some toasted white bread, please. You want butter or jam on that toast, honey? No, ma'am. Dry. Got any fried chicken? Best damn chicken in the state. Bring me four fried chickens and a Coke. You want chicken wings or chicken legs? Four fried chickens and a Coke. And some dry white toast, please. Uh, and so he kind of like, he's like, oh, I don't want any of this. But Francho, I guess because the walls must be paper thin and that Robert Montgomery never locks his door, just kind of wanders in and is like, mm, this smells delicious. Who's this person? I'll eat this food now. Ah, feed me. All right. You the new cook? I haven't seen you before. Oh, you've seen me before. Only I was in my nightgown. And he just kind of ingratiates himself to Janet by eating up her cooking. So this is kind of like the beginnings of the love triangle situation. Uh, because Frenchot is immediately taken with Janet, but in the sense that he'd like someone to cook for him. Uh, that seems to be his primary interest. He doesn't really have any other reasons for liking Janet. Bob, on the other hand, is just really crotchety, angry that all of this is happening. In the meantime, Janet has put an ad in the paper uh, <laughs> asking for George to come forward and just let her know what's going on. And There's some kind of promise of money in the ad. Yeah. This obviously attracts... A whole bunch of ne'er-do-wells uh, outside of Bob's apartment because she puts his dress in the ad um, and they're sort of congregating outside and Bob is incensed that they're there. He pulls Janet out and is like, 
look at what you've done. He then lifts her up so she can look at all of the men to see if George is there. Uh, and she's like, no, he's not here. Very hilarious visual. And what I imagine Candace will have to do to <laughs> Tiff to find me at LAX exactly when I land. I, lo- I love this this scene in particular because this is just like very selfish of me. But this to me echoes a lot of the um, the physical stuff that I love with Janet very early in her career. Where... Like, when she was paired with Charlie Farrell and so much of the dynamic between the two of them is about their physical difference in size. And so there's always these scenes, you know what I mean? It's like, people are always picking Janet up. It's it's this perennial kind of trend. And I don't think there's, again, I not to speak in absolutes all the time, but I really don't think there is another actress who so consistently is, like, manhandled in the way that she is. Like, she's, like, a little, like, a child. And it's it's very odd. But at the same time... I do kind of love it because to me it is very much like, oh, this reminds me of Lucky Star. It's just, anyway, whatever. Well, Charlie can't, I mean, lift her really up in Lucky Star because he's in a wheelchair. But you know what I mean. That's <laughs> that's the that's the general. Uh, but then, like, things kind of come to a head when Francho sort of moves Janet into his house. And Bob comes in. He's like, well, you're, why are you living here? Why do you have water beside the bed? Because apparently people drink, drink water. Uh, and... Janet's like, oh, well, Francho's kind of just been sleepwalking a lot, and I use the water to wake him up, because sometimes he comes into my room when he's sleepwalking. And is this before or after they sort of go on that, like, date? This is after. First, they, um, Bob gets his, like, moment of inspiration from Janet, where he decides he's going to write a serial, like a, a fiction serial, about a girl from a small town who comes to the big city, and I believe it's called Chickadee in the City. And then he he consults Janet for like ideas as to how Chickadee will behave, uh, respond to various situations like meeting mobsters, and that they go out on a date to discuss that over dinner. And at dinner, um, Robert Montgomery is freaked the fuck out because Janet starts saying "right" <laughs> before she eats. <laughs> Me and. Bob does not know how to respond or what to do. And so then he's like, well, I may as well roll with it. And so he bows his head and obviously starts saying grace or I don't know how it works. I'm not religious. Anyway, then they're like talking over dinner and then Janet's sort of looking over his shoulder at a table of three men and just being polite and sort of smiling at them. And... Rob Montgomery's like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But Janet's like, I'm just being neighborly, you know, smiling at them. Uh, meanwhile, the men on the other table take it as some kind of signal that Janet wants to be released from her imprisonment with... That she's a hooker. That she's a hooker. Yeah. She wants to get away from Robert Montgomery. Um, and so they come over and try to act like chums um, with Janet. And Janet's like, I don't know this person. Who the fuck are you? And like... <laughs> This whole big scene happens because, I don't know, they all start getting riled up. Uh, and then Janet is distracted by, uh, a f- like, flambe uh, dessert and tries to put it out with a jug of water on a table, um, not realizing that it's supposed to be served on fire. And everyone laughs at her and she's dragged out of the restaurant. I think, though, also in the process of trying to put out that fire, she burns her finger. And when they get home, Bob brings her, like, three pounds of butter on a plate to to treat her burn and she just fucking sticks her finger in it (laughs) and it's like man other people need to eat that butter but yeah back to the sleepwalking uh it turns out that franco i mean it's not a surprise 
but is a lecherous bastard um, and has been pretending to sleepwalk to get into her room. And sort of Robert Montgomery is in the room when this happens and Franco comes over and he's like got his arms outstretched in front of him, kind of like an old school mummy would, <laughs> um, in this fake sleepwalking thing. He opens the door fine because he like walks from his room over the balcony into Janet's room. And yeah, Robert Montgomery hurls the cup of water over him and sort of they get into an argument and Robert insists that Janet go sleep in his apartment while he and Franco will share Franco's apartment. Uh, And then like another attempt at sleepwalking happens because obviously they share that balcony between the two apartments. Uh, But obviously because Bob is there, he kind of catches on immediately and like follows Franco with the same kind of mummy stance and um that's just a bit of comedy i guess but then uh Franco wakes up the next morning and he's had like a change of heart and decided that he's not going to be a creep near rapist anymore and he loves janet and he wants to marry her so he makes that announcement and bob's like he, he has a very averse reaction gotta get you to a doctor <laughs> i was like there's something wrong do you know what i was asking you when you came out no but I can well imagine. Mal, I'm going to marry Nancy. I beg your pardon? I don't blame you for being surprised after the way I've acted, but I've been doing a lot of thinking. What's the matter with you? You're crazy? Are you mad? You're drunk. I haven't had a drop. Are you serious? Never more serious in my life. So let's take them to like their egghead former college roommate who now is like one of the is the one of the best psychoanalysts in the world. And it's got an incredibly unnatural stream of dialogue where it's like Bob looks over at a picture on um, his bookcase of him and Franchot and this dude, like in their graduation gowns, by the way, all just looking like they do present day in 1938. And it's like, oh, remember what, I don't remember the character's name, Egghead Owsley? Pie face. If I wasn't that far off. He's like, you know, remember him, you know, our friend from college and Franchot's like, yeah, whatever. And then Bob's like, he's one of the greatest psychoanalysts in the entire world. And he'll be able to treat you. And it's just, it's really good. I've got it. Or Dr. Alonzo Z. Stewart. What about him? Good old pie face. Our roommate in college. Now one of the greatest psychoanalysts in the country. Bob, you've got to see him. What for? I feel fine. All I ask you to do is to lay your problem before one of America's greatest thinkers. Again, me trying to get that this scene done as fast as I possibly can because the commissary is going to be run out of that parfait i like so much and i gotta hurry <laughs> and pie face's conclusion ends up being that franchot's fine totally normal in the head but uh bob has a brain disease definitely there's definitely something wrong with bob <laughs> which is true which is true blob is particularly like deranged in this there are a lot of blob blob gummery movies where he's like a little bit off uh, this is this is definitely one of the ones where you're like, this man has a serious personality disorder or some sort of cluster B thing happening. And I think uh, so Pie Face is the one who kind of raises the possibility that Bob is also in love with Janet. And again, Bob's like, no fucking way. I think from here, Franco sort of gets the wheels in motion. He invites Janet's family up from whatever small town they live in for the wedding oh and bob bob is extra pissed now because um after he comes back from the psychoanalyst uh he i think suggests he insults janet some way and janet just eviscerates him she's fucking mad got him hypnotized he thinks he's in love with you a fine marriage that would be who would your friends be what would you talk about what kind of a life would you lead 
New York's foremost publisher, married to a Birch Valley buttercup. What do you know about me? I'm not Chickadee. I'm Nancy Hollister McFarlane Briggs. I'm real, not something that came out of a silly book. You think I've got nothing to talk about. Why, when I was 15, I wrote a poem and read it at graduation that had more to say than all your books put together. And as for friends, I'll bet I've made more real friends in this neighborhood than you have in your whole life. You wouldn't know a good wife if you saw one. Well, I'm one. And, and I don't speak and, until I've got something to say. And, and I'll make my own clothes. And, and I have pretty hair. And, and I'm loyal. And, and if I loved a man, I'd devote my whole life to making him happy. If, if he loved me. <laughs> and so Bob's like, he's in a mood when this, this all goes off. And he invites Franchot's family down um, to try and intervene because he, I think he knows that they wouldn't be interested in having Janet marry their yeah, son. Yeah, they're, they're like social register types from Newport, Rhode Island. They're society people. And Charlie Grapewin is barely wearing a, a shirt, so the families are not compatible. But all these things kind of converge uh, in the apartment. And Franco, he like begins proposing... Nancy, darling, where have you been? I've got to talk to you. There's something I want to ask you. Not now, Mr. Hanson, please. But, but Nancy, I love you. I want you to be my wife. Nancy, speak to me. Give me your answer. <gasps> oh! <laughs> oh, Nancy, don't take it that way. You mustn't cry. Bobby loves you. Nancy Kins, let Bobby in. Bobby wants to tell you how much he loves you. Because when who cries, it hurts Bobby terrible. Who wouldn't want Bobby to be hurt, would you? And Janet's family arrive, and also Franco's family arrive, and immediately Grandpa is, like, ready to start scrapping because Franco's family are very insulting towards Janet. Um, Franco says this thing, he's like, oh, but we need to breed outside the family. We need new stock. You'll love Nancy. She's wonderful. Yes, and anybody that says she ain't has got to answer to me. I think we ought to be proud to join this family. Why? Why? Well, because we need fresh stock, that's why. We've been watered down with decadent nobility, weakened by inbreeding. It's very strange, but um, it's kind of at this point that George finally appears. because The man, the myth, the um, legend. The man, the myth, the legend. Because Janet's family are under the impression that she's fan George, and that's why they've been invited up. Uh, but he appears, he, I don't know, it seems like he appears on the balcony <laughs> instead of at the front door of the apartment. So he, I, he might have scaled the building um, to get up to this point. So the, the French doors kind of open onto Grady Sutton, who is George. And when this happened, we were just like, oh, my God, it's Grady Sutton. I don't know what people will probably know Grady Sutton is. I, I, what I always think of is the bit in the Harold Lloyd movie, Movie Crazy, when there's the mouse in the restaurant and Grady jumps up yeah. the top of the table and he's like, oh, Lord, oh, there's a mouse to it all. Like, he sounds like... Um, like Beverly Leslie from Will and Grace, like the Le Leslie Jordan. And he he's basically the original Gomer Pyle. Anyway, it it's Grady Sutton. Hello, Nancy. Long time no see. Why, George, where have you been? Why were you at Nancy's wedding? As Nancy's father, oh, I, I saw your ad, Nancy, but I couldn't come to you until I'd cleared the name of Wilkins. Yeah, he kind of 
he explains to Janet kind of why he couldn't be there. I can't remember exactly what his excuse is. I don't think they ever really uh, get into it. No. It's just, he's, he's just kind of like, yeah, I had to deal um, with some shit, but it's okay now. And of course, this is like, again, like such like a, this is indicated all the way back in the first act because 13 minutes in, Janet says, he's scared of women and I'm the only woman he like ain't never been scared of. <laughs> and you forget about that and it's like, oh, because it's Grady Sutton. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's not, they didn't even do that like Philadelphia story type thing where it's like another good looking, it's Grady Sutton. That's what makes it even better. <laughs> and it was here we were like, oh, well, is there a possibility that Janet's just going to go off with Grady Sutton? Um, yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. And again, I have seen this movie before, but it's been like 10 years. And from the moment Grady Sutton shows up, it like she's just told Franchot that she thinks he's great, but she can't marry him because she doesn't love him. And it really did feel like she was just going to be like, okay, I'm going to go home and marry Grady Sutton. That would have been really bold filmmaking. I would have appreciated that. But instead, what happens is that a fight breaks out between Bob, Frencho, and I can't remember. I think maybe Grandpa instigates a, it and he, he goes It starts for... with Frencho deciding he's going to fight Grady Sutton. And then Bob has to get in on it too. Oh, of course. Because um, Frencho always makes the best decisions when he's about to punch someone in the face. Um, and yeah, Bob gets caught in the crossfire and goes down and that's kind of when Janet realizes that she loves him then it just sort of fades to black the and like an hour and four minutes long or something and it opens up again on this boat situation and it's sort of a, a recalling back to earlier in the movie Janet is seemingly looking for her purse and we have and she's on the boat we have Robert Montgomery sort of opening the doors to cabs on the shore looking for this bag. And then the fucking, the be- the horn goes off to, you know, say everyone needs to board. And uh, Janet finds her bag. She's like, oh, it's here. And she's waving it as the boat leaves Bob behind. It's obviously their honeymoon. And and that's it. That's the movie. I don't think he can get on the boat. There's um, no way he can get like on the boat. Like he did on the, on the train. <laughs> So it's obviously just a honeymoon for one for <laughs> Janet. It was probably probably preferable because um, it's just so annoying. I mean, he's he would be so and, like, miserable in, in general in real life too. But like it just it it seems like wherever they were going, um, he wouldn't have had a fun time, and he would have made everyone else's time very horrible. But he does look really good with a black eye. <laughs> so after he gets when he gets the shit kicked out of him, but I don't. Know. Grady Sutton, I don't know who punches him, but he ends up with the, with the black eye. And it's like, Bob looks good. This is a bizarre movie, obviously. One of the things I find really funny about this movie is that Guy Kibbe is fourth bill. He has like three lines and like all of them are like, as Nancy's father. And that's like all he says in the entire movie. Yeah, we didn't even mention him, did we? Yeah, Grandpa yeah, has like way more going on. Yeah, it's odd. It's very odd. It's like, that could have been anyone. Why are you paying Guy Kibbe for this? Because at the time, Guy Kibbe is a fairly in-demand supporting player. You know, I've got a cool fact about Claire Dodd. Claire Dodd is buried in an interesting place. I think she might be, as far as I know, the only movie star to be buried in this particular kind of place. She is buried at the Brand Library in Glendale because she married into the Brand family, which, again, if you're a beautiful actress, that's what you should do. You should marry into money. And uh, the Miradero, the mansion, the Brand family estate... Um, when it was turned over and turned into the brand, it was turned over to the city of Glendale and turned into the brand public library, the family cemetery went with it. So when she died, she was buried at the library. So you can go and I guess check out your Junie Moon books or whatever the kids are reading nowadays 
and go over and look at a dead woman's grave. This is also a really weird movie because Richard Thorpe is a really, really, really uneven and inconsistent director. It's like, he's really an odd duck because he makes shit like this. And he makes, um, at one point, he went through kind of like a a fashion of making these like awful Technicolor like spectacles. He made the worst um, Prisoner of Zenda adaptation, the one with Stuart Granger. And he made all those terrible Paul Apprentice, Jim Hutton movies in the 60s. But then he made Night Must Fall, which is... Enough, like, that's like a lifetime achievement worthy, you know, fantastic. It's weird. How often do you have somebody who who makes just shit, 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 and then turns out an absolute masterpiece like that? I wonder if it was kind of like a Stanley Doan and Gene Kelly thing where Bob is maybe doing a little bit more directing. Anyway, I just think it's really weird. I think it's weird that Richard Thorpe, normally people aren't that inconsistent. You know what I mean? Like, normally you have more hits then misses but richard thorpe is almost entirely missed and then when he swings it out of the park he makes night must fall well this was um this was janet's i think second last movie right there was this and then uh the young and heart with dongles the young and heart and this is also the one i believe where she met adrian yeah so i guess she made this and was you know, you know kind of in the in the mix for young and heart already and then just uh fucked off to marry adrian and you know what and then they moved to like argentina and lived in like a beautiful house out on the Pampas or whatever, which is like way better than being in Hollywood as an aging actress. I was just going to say, I guess we should uh, specify in case anyone's not aware, Adrian was a costume designer at MGM. So she met him that way and married him. Yeah. I don't think anyone really understands the particulars of that relationship. I think that might be one of those things that's kind of lost to history, as it were, because uh, no one's ever accused Adrian of being a ladies man. But they did produce a child who looks exactly like Janet, by the way as like an elderly man, which is very, very strange. But yeah, you can kind of see why Janet retired after this because the the naive character has like, that, that archetype has like totally gone out of fashion. And she just kind of outlasted all of her rivals in that sense. And then she was kind of helped along by the thing that she really is, there's a completely really undistinguished stretch of her career from like 1933 to like 1937 and then when she makes Star is Born then it kind of rejuvenates it by giving kind of like a new twist on that character because Vicky Lester is kind of that same type but like slightly more grown up but a lot of the other actresses who during the silent era had this similar persona to her even though no one's was really quite like Janet and I do want to do a couple of the Janet silence so we could talk about that but um they kind of went in an opposite direction like Loretta Young in like the laugh clown laugh era, like the late twenties is kind of in the same, you know, that, that, that the innocent kind of thing. And then she obviously, once the pre-codes come in, she goes full like bad girl. And so then Loretta is able to kind of mature and play these um, more complex and more challenging roles that Janet was not receiving. And then Janet also kind of had that same burden that falls under a lot of people who are the biggest star at their studio. So unlike MGM, which had a lot of women's parts and a lot of good women's parts to compete for, Janet kind of just got stuck with whatever was going on at Fox. And she and Fox had a very tendentious relationship in terms of contract. I don't know. It's, it's just an interesting thing. And then I that, that Janet character, the thing that Janet embodied in the cinema, you don't see for a really long time. And it's not really until the 50s that that kind of comes back in and you see it kind of, I think Marilyn is a good embodiment. Marilyn has a kind of a, obviously the sex kitten thing, but if you take that away, a lot of that vulnerability 
and that just like childishness kind of comes back in. And then I, I think Natalie Wood is probably the next star that takes that models that as their persona as a young woman. But it's just really, it's really interesting. I don't know. Jay Anderson is a very interesting movie star. And this is like, it's so sad seeing somebody at like the very end of the ride, you know, the very end of the ride. This is it, you know, Young and Heart's an okay movie, but you know, it's also got dongles in it. So that's never the note you want to go out on, especially because she's not even the romantic lead in that movie. Dongles, she plays Dongles' sister, so Dongles ends up with Paulette Goddard, and she ends up with fucking Richard Carlson, which, like, ew, gross. But anyway, I love Janet a lot. I love Blob a lot. There are some conservatives that we enjoy on this podcast. There's, like, a troubling number of them, actually. Most of them, actually. I think probably, honestly, if we actually, like, put it down, most of our favorite stars were tax evaders. And several of them committed a vehicular homicide, so... Franchot didn't. He just tried to commit regular homicide. Um, <laughs> I feel like we didn't talk about that at all. The whole, we, we could always do a, like a later Franchot movie. I think it would be fun to do Advising Consent just because Advising Consent is so long and so much happens in it, but nothing happens at the exact same time. It's a really weird movie, but that whole like late Franchot era. But yeah, no, Franchot fighting Tom Neal for Barbara Payton's love and then Barbara Payton just being like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> you old piece of shit. Franchise I mean, but he came out on top in the end, didn't he? That's true. They were both blacklisted and he got to be in advising consent. So I reckon there's probably at least a couple of proper franchises we can do. Yeah, there are. I mean, Immunity on the Bounty is a movie that did happen, you know. Um, yeah, and like even all of his turns with um, Gene Harlow, there's stuff we can talk about in those. Perhaps not a an episode each on those, but like... Yeah, a good man. He was always gonna be that second fucking lead, wasn't he? It's he's got that Lou thing though. Like you said, that's that chaotic, chaotic evil Lou. It's like he just can't. I don't know what it is. I don't know what. Whereas Lou, like you know, had that moment of being like a real star in his own right. Franchot never really ascended to it. And I think Franchot's a great example of somebody who honestly probably should have just stayed at the theater. I think his life probably would have been a lot easier. But what are you gonna do? My grandma met Franchot backstage. At a, at, a, at, a, at a performance, and uh, he was very nice to her. She was also very young and very hot, so that was probably why. <laughs> uh, Franchot didn't get late that night. Sorry, Franchot. But maybe he did. Not by my grandma. Maybe <laughs> someone else? I don't know. <laughs> someone else's grandma? I don't know. Oh, so in closing, Todd, I want you to put in the bit 52 minutes in-ish and Three Loves Have Nancy. I just want to say this reminds me of us. Man's mad. Can't marry Nancy. Won't allow it. After all, he's my best friend. He's too fine. Too intelligent. Listen, you moron. Candace, mm-hmm. how many poorly thrown punches would you give this out of ten? I would give this, like, six out of ten. And, like, five of those are for Three Loves Has Nancy, and the other one is for Love on the Run, which I just, I hate that movie. And I find it's, <laughs> it's so long, and it's so boring. And... Franchot gets locked too many times in too many small confining places for him to still be conscious at the end of it. Todd, out of how many uh, Grady Sutton as Chekhov's gun (laughs) would you give this movie out of five? Uh, Out of five, I guess like a three. And again, it's mostly for Three Loves Has Nancy, which is, you know, it does have the decency to be like an hour long. Uh, Very, (laughs) very kind of the movie to do that. Um, they're both pretty crazy at times. I think the uh, the whole bit with the weird caretaker in Love on the Run is probably its best moment, but otherwise it kind of mm-hmm. sucks. 
Um, Amelia, how many gallons of blood out of 10 would you give this double feature? It's getting two. I mean, it's just one point each at this point. Um, I, I really didn't like, I mean, the, the Frasier thing really threw me off in Three Loves Has Nancy. I just, I've, I, f- I find Robert Montgomery insufferable <laughs> <laughs> in this particular vehicle. And I mean, Love on the Run was just extremely stupid. I, I think I do want to say thanks to Isabella for this uh, request because it was a fun one, even though we don't like yes. the movies themselves. It's always fun to just shit on Franchot for an hour and a half. So yeah. <laughs> thanks for that one. I enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah, and we hope you enjoyed the episode too. <laughs> um, as always, you can you can either send your requests to our email, which is at basketpod at gmail.com, I think. Yeah, it's at basketpod at <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or you can send them via our socials at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter Um, you can also just tell us what you think of the show and hey maybe we'll start checking out email more frequently yeah I think that's it I think that's all we need to say please do not storm any more federal buildings (laughs) Um, and yeah stay safe wear a mask don't be fresh or tone (laughs) alright bye goodbye (laughs) bye Every time I think of helicopter, though, I think of Whirlybird from uh, Day of the Dead. I can't hear I can't hear the word helicopter without thinking Whirlybird in a Jamaican accent. That's just a little fact about me. Anyway, uh, this is a podcast. <laughs>